Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Before we begin our time looking at God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can be here today to spend time in the presence of other believers, for we are not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves, but we recognize that it is through our assembly together that we are encouraged by the presence of others, seeing them and their devotion to your word, their desire to know the truth and to apply it in their lives. Father, we thank you that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that it is through your word, as our Lord Jesus Christ prayed, that we are sanctified. There is no other means other than the Holy Spirit working with your word. Father, we pray that we might be responsive to the teaching of your word, that we may come to understand more fully who we are in Christ, and what a remarkable thing it is that you have created in this church age, this new man, this new body, this new household, this new temple, of which we are a part, the church, the bride of Christ. Help us to understand all of its significance, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and we're coming to the last two verses in this opening uh, section, the verse 13, these first 13 verses, and this has been, I don't know about you, but I have thought of this as an extremely rich study. There is so much here, and one of the things we spent some time on earlier, back in October when we were in the first part of this, and you remember that even though we have been in this section since October, there was a good bit of time when we were studying the issue of the angelic revolt as it applies to verse 10 in the center of this that was very, very important. But that back at the beginning, we talked about this word that is uh, translated in the old King James as a dispensation And in the New King James, it is also translated as a dispensation. In New American Standard and others, it is translated as an administration. But this brings up the very important teaching of God's Word that has come to be identified by the term dispensationalism. And one of the things that we find is that there are a lot of Christians who don't understand dispensationalism. There are a lot of theologians who ought to know better who have written hostile books against dispensationalism that will embarrass them at the judgment seat of Christ because of their ad hominem arguments and their misrepresentation. But we are often said that as dispensationalists, we're just reading our theology into the text, which is not true. So if you want to know the answer to that, you need to be here next Sunday. Even more, 
You need to listen to the messages that Dr. Mike Stallard will be bringing at the Chafer Conference. That's one of the major themes of the conference this year is on uh, issues in dispensationalism. And Mike has his, uh, he got a second master's at Dallas. He'd done his first three years somewhere else, did, did an STM, I think is what they call it, at Dallas, and then he did the Ph.D. program at Dallas about the same time that I was there. So we've known each other uh, a year or two, and he then taught for many years at the Baptist Bible Seminary up in uh, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And he is, as part of what he did about 12, 13 years ago, he started a group called the Dispensational, the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics, which meets every year and, like pre-trib, has been a fountain of excellent research and scholarship in the area of dispensational studies. So he will be doing that, and as an introduction to that topic, Next Sunday, because I will wrap up the section through 13 this morning, next Sunday we'll come back and look specifically at some things I've brought out a few months ago, things I'll emphasize again this morning. But using that as a starting point, we're going to address the question, how many dispensations are there and how do we know how many dispensations there are from the Scripture? Okay, it's not a theology imposed on the Bible. These are derived from the text itself. So that's going to be uh, next Sunday morning. So let's just look at our passage, just get a little overview for context. Um, look at verses 7 through 10, and then that sets the stage for uh, 11, 12, and 13. As Paul is writing and developing this, he's been emphasizing the mission and the ministry that God gave him as an apostle and that he was specifically designated as the apostle to the Gentiles. That's not excluding Jews, but his primary message was to teach and give the revelation of this mystery, this never-before-revealed information that God was doing something new in this dispensation, in this church age that had never been done before, and that there was no longer going to be a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile were now intimately united together in the body of Christ for a special purpose. And so he writes in verse 7, of which, that is the gospel, which he ended uh, verse 6 with, of the gospel, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me. That's his apostolic message and mission. According to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. This grace meaning not the grace of salvation, but the ministry and mission given him that God called him and gifted him as an apostle, as one born out of time, as he said, that I should evangelize, bring the gospel to the Gentiles, uh, and bring to them with as part of his broad gospel message, as we've seen, the unsearchable 
riches of Christ. And then verses 9 and 10, he, especially verse 9, he gives us the twofold purpose. The last part of verse 8, rather, in verse 9, first of all, it was, as I just said, to preach the good news or to evangelize to the Gentiles. But he's using that word gospel in a broader sense. He's a, he, it's not just, what do I do to go to heaven when I die? It includes everything that God has done for us in our salvation, all of the spiritual assets that we received, our, our new identity in Christ, that as he stated back in verses uh, 6 and 7 in the second chapter, that, that we were uh, given new life in Christ, and we were raised together, and we were seated together with him in the heavenlies. And so here he is referring back to the, though all that wealth, that spiritual wealth given to us in Christ, that's his first purpose, to evangelize the Gentiles, and the second is to reveal to all what is the, and here the word in the Greek is oikonome, which means dispensation, the administration of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. And that this wasn't an afterthought. That's the purpose in verse 10, to the intent. So he had a purpose. And that, that those three words in the English just translate one word from the Greek indicating the ultimate purpose for this action, to the intent. It tells us that he's doing this purposefully and that this was not something that was an afterthought. He says that now... And this is an important word in verse, we looked at this last time, it is the Greek word noon, but there are two different Greek words that are used for now. And when they're used together, as they are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that the other word has a more narrow context, like now in the immediate present, and that this word nuni really refers to a broader period of time, such as now in this age, in this church age, in this dispensation. And so it should be understood that what Paul is saying is that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So we have the now emphasizing what's going on in the present time, and this is all so connected back to what Paul said in verse 5. There he said, In other ages this mystery was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So if the now refers to now in this church age, what do we learn here? We learn that there are other ages right? And that these other ages preceded the present church age. So the word that's translated ages is in a plural. So that tells you that there's more than one. So just from looking at this verse, we know that before this present age, this church age, there were at least two other dispensations. So right there, we know that there's at least three dispensations. 
But what we're going to do next time is unpack that a little more and look at some other verses to tie this together and to show that dispensationalism is not a theology imposed on the text. In fact, one of the things that is commonly misunderstood is that dispensationalism inherently is not um, is, is a theology that is based on a consistent hermeneutic. Sometimes people think theology is a hermeneutic. So when people say, oh, you're a dispensationalist, you're interpreting the Scripture that way. No, we're interpreting the Scripture in a literal manner, using grammar, history, and understanding the role of figures, and, figures of speech. So we're interpreting the Scripture according to a consistent hermeneutic. The result of that is that it produces a theology, the theology is not imposed on the text. It comes from the text. So uh, we see this difference between now and other ages, and that tells us that there's more than just one. That verse 10 says that to, for the purpose or to the intent that the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known and then what's that word? Now. So last time we looked at what wisdom was, that this is the skillful application of knowledge. Wisdom is not uh, some sort of sophisticated philosophical intellectualism, which is how the Greeks understood wisdom. But in Hebrew thinking, it had to do with skill. And I talked about how God gave skill to Aholiab and Bezalel, who were two of the head craftsmen who were in charge of constructing the furniture, uh, weaving all of the uh, tapestries for the tabernacle and making them uh, a beautiful. They were given this special skill. It's the same word used for wisdom. So when we apply that to Christian life and we are to live wisely, it means that we are to apply the scripture in a way that our lives create a, a beautiful uh, testimony to the grace of God. But this here, it is applied to God's wisdom. And I said that this takes us back to verse 11 in chapter 2, excuse me, verse 10 in chapter 2, that God created us in Christ Jesus for good works as a, as a, uh, as a, the word in the uh, English is workmanship. We are his workmanship. Poema is where we, the Greek word, which is where we get our word for uh, poem. So it has to do with something that is well-designed, something that is thought through, something that has uh, beauty. So uh, he is, God is working through us to present something of beauty. But notice what is said about that, that the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom, skill, craftsmanship of God might be made known now in this church age. It wasn't this aspect apparently was not made known in earlier dispensations. And there's a hint there that because this wisdom of God is related to this new entity that is called a new man, it's called a new body, it's called a new household and a new temple. 
What distinguishes it in this age from all the ages before is the union of Jew and Gentile together. We go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and we learn in verse 14 that Christ himself, he himself is our peace, who has made both, both Jew and Gentile now one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, which he says in verse 15 is the law of commandments. So what happens at the cross is the law is ended, and those who are saved in the church age, are Jew and Gentile, are united together. So when we look at this unique creation of this body of Christ as Jew and Gentile, that now it's giving testimony to something that was never given testimony to before, it indicates and implies that the enmity that existed before between Jew and Gentile is the ultimate focal point in this passage. And that the resolution of that enmity between Jew and Gentile is talked about as this masterpiece that now comes into existence and it is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So there is something special about this, that this is speaking about uh, not only the elect angels, but also the fallen angels, that they are learning something about how God's plan is resolving the problem of anti-Semitism that has its roots from the time of Abraham, the hostility that uh, fallen angels, that demons engendered against the Jews to try to break God's plan and purpose through the Jews is what's hinted at here, and that God had a plan to resolve that, which he does at the cross through this new entity that comes into existence from the day of Pentecost where Jew and Gentile are brought together. This is the true solution to the problem of anti-Semitism. And there should be no basis for Christian anti-Semitism. And one of the horrible embarrassments to Christians should be the many, many centuries when Christian anti-Semitism flourished and became the primary way in which Jews thought about Gentiles. Even today, when you are involved with the Jewish community, one of the questions that is frequently asked is why all of a sudden, for to them it seems like all of a sudden, because for about uh, 1,800 years it seemed like they were the object of uh, hate and enmity from from Christians, why all of a sudden now are Christians... Uh, loving Israel and supportive of Israel and supportive of the Jews. And it's the result of the fact that coming out of the Protestant Reformation, there was a shift back toward a, uh, a literal interpretation of Scripture. Before the Protestant Reformation, the dominant way of interpreting Scripture was through allegory. And so that from the time of roughly... Origin in the early 2nd century and then the time of Augustine in the 
uh, early 5th century, around 400, when he basically takes Origen's allegorical interpretation and institutionalizes it through his theology that for the next 1,100 years, this allegorical interpretation dominated Christendom so that Israel no longer met ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Israel was the church in the Old Testament, and the word church no longer just referred to Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ, but referred uh, the word church was the new Israel of God, and this came from the fact that under the allegorical interpretation there developed a theology called replacement theology, that Israel was replaced in God's plan by the church. And so that, because the Jews were those who killed Christ, they became the object of hatred from the from Christians. And the reality is, is that God did not set aside Israel permanently. He did not get rid of them and go to a new people of God, but he developed alongside Israel a new people of God so that all of his plans, promises, and purposes in Israel will eventually be fulfilled just as he promised. And that part of this ultimate plan solving all of these problems is embedded in the fact that he kept a secret And the secret is that he had a different plan after the crucifixion to create this new entity of the church where Jew and Gentile would be united together in one body in Christ. And that that has an eternal purpose in demonstrating his multifaceted wisdom. And so he solves that problem because the root is a spiritual cause and there can only be a spiritual solution. And so his purpose in doing this is implied here that this now that is happening, this present thing that unites Jew and Gentile together is to teach something to the angels about God's resolution of this problem. We'll develop this a little bit more next time when we go through these foundations for dispensationalism. So it is the wisdom of God, his skillful craftsmanship in creating this new entity that is designed to teach today in the church age something that was never taught before, that is related to this union of Jew and Gentile together in Christ that's uh, in the heavenly realms. Now, in relation to that wisdom, there were three things I pointed out last time. First of all, that God is creating a masterpiece. Going back to Ephesians 2.10, as I've just mentioned, of Jew and Gentile together in one body, identified by actually four different phrases in the, uh, chapter 2, 11 to 22, a new man, a new body, a new household, and a new temple. Second thing, wisdom is used in some context to identify Christ. He is the wisdom of God incarnate. And so this is, describes the work of Christ in 1 Corinthians. So it's tied to what Christ did on the cross. Now, one of the things that we'll get to eventually may not be for another 
five or six weeks, but we're going to investigate in our study in Second Peter related to false teaching going on today, the fact that there are uh, different gospels that are being uh, passed around, you might say, that emphasize the person of Christ as opposed to the work of Christ. Whereas what we see at the Lord's table is that both the person of Christ and the work of Christ are part and parcel of the gospel message. It's not one to the exclusion of the other. You can't minimize it. So it's the work of Christ that's emphasized uh, here and what he does on the cross because he can, he not, what he did on the cross breaks that barrier between Jew and Gentile. And uh, point B under this was I said that the body of Christ, the church, was never before seen in history. It's not anticipated. It's not expected. But it wasn't, as we'll see in the next verse, it wasn't something that God came up with at the last minute because, oops, the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah. What am I going to do? Oh, my, I got an idea. I'll come up with a new people of God. That's not what happened as what we'll see. And then the last thing that's part of this is that this is the uh, particular manifestation of God's grace in this church age. And the third thing we learned from that verse is that this relates all of this to the angelic revolt, demonstrating God's omniscience and omnipotence, uh, that God's omniscience and omnipotence alone can rule his creation, that no creature, no matter how brilliant, no matter how capable, can rule the universe and rule God's creation because he doesn't have enough knowledge. There is a qualitative difference between knowing as much as Satan knows and having complete omniscience. So this is exemplified in God's plan at its highest form in the church age. So verse 11, he says, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. That starting point where he says, according to, this is a term in the Greek, a preposition that basically is identifying this as a standard, that what God is doing was according to something. It was according to a standard, and that standard is what is stated in the next verse or the next phrase, rather, his eternal purpose. This phrase indicates that uh, God had a plan and purpose all along. It's not a second thought. It's not we're going to go to alternate plan B or alternate plan C. He had this in mind all along. And he then accomplished this. This is the Greek word poieo, which often people will simply translate with its basic meaning to do or to make something. But in numerous contexts, it has a more specific meaning than simply to do something or to make something. It has the idea of accomplishing something, bringing something from uh, plan to performance, to uh, bring it to fruition. And so God has this purpose that runs all the way through history, and he accomplished it how? In Christ Jesus, in his work on the cross. 
that in Christ Jesus our Lord, and notice how Paul focuses our attention on Christ here, on who he is. He uses his uh, Old Testament Hebrew title first. He is the Messiah, which is the Old Testament word for the anointed or appointed one. He is the Mashiach. The Christos is just the Greek translation of Mashiach. Second, we have the name for his humanity, Yeshua, that he is Mashiach Yeshua. He is Christ Jesus, the humanity of Christ, born in Bethlehem uh, to his human parents uh, or his human mother, his adopted father, Joseph, he is born in Bethlehem, and his uh, uh, mother and adopted father rear him in Nazareth. He is the Messiah. He is human, indicated by Yeshua, and he is God. He is our Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, but that translates the idea of deity in the Old Testament. So he is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He is both man and God. And so he brings this eternal uh, purpose uh, together to present Jew and Gentile together as one in the body of Christ. So he accomplishes his plan in Christ. That is his death, as we studied back in 2, 14 and 15, is what uh, destroyed this, this barrier between Jew and Gentile. That verse in verse 15 again reads, having abolished in his flesh, in, indicating his whole body presence on the cross. In the early church, there was a heresy called docetism. And it was the idea that the logos was a... Uh, could never truly be in a human body because they came from a platonic uh, uh, background ideology that said that 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 which is material is is inherently evil. And so uh, the Logos could never be uh, incarnate in flesh because that would uh, taint him with sin. And this was a great heresy that ran... And so the, the, you had these ideas were even present as early as the first century. And so these concepts that Christ bore in his own body on the tree in First in Peter and here that he uh, it was abolished in his flesh. It's emphasizing that, that he appeared materially, physically in a truly human body. He was, he was um, true humanity that he abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So his death on the cross is what abolished the law, ended it. It is no was no longer in effect after that. So this was accomplished in Christ Jesus. And then verse 12 goes on to say, in whom? So it's in addition, in whom, that is in Christ also, although the word also isn't here, this is an expansion of what was said in 11, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So in Christ, if you are in Christ, that is because you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And according to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, 
that at that very instant in time when you understood the gospel and in your soul you said, that's true, I believe it. You didn't have to walk an aisle, raise your hand. You didn't have to pray a sinner's prayer. All that was necessary was for you to think, yes, that's true, I believe it. And at that instant you were saved, you were given new life in Christ, which is the sense of being born again, being regenerated. You were made a new creature in Christ, according to Second Corinthians uh, 5, a new creature in Christ. And Romans 5, I mean Romans 6, 3 through 6 says that we were identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, the theological term that's used for that is positional truth. It is in that identification with Christ that is shows our new position in him. So every believer is in Christ. That is also what is described as the baptism by the Holy Spirit. When people, a lot of people, hear the word baptism, they immediately think of water. Well, in one sense, you should, because the baptism by the Holy Spirit is demonstrated through water baptism. The purpose of water baptism is to teach a, a, a an abstract truth, one that's difficult for a lot of people to understand, and that's the idea of our position in Christ. And so God gives us a symbol, a representation that we can learn from, and in baptizing people, this is what should be taught. Unfortunately, it rarely is. And so people don't really understand, and throughout most of the church age, they've never understood what baptism is. In the early church, as we studied in our Monday night uh, classes recently, in the early church, it was the idea that you were physically washed of your sins. And so what they would encourage some people to do is wait until near the end of their life before they were baptized so that they wouldn't have enough time left to commit any really bad sins. And from that developed the idea of purgatory, that you have these other sins that you weren't cleansed from at baptism, then you've got to go to purgatory, and you've got to work that off before you can finally get into heaven. But that isn't what baptism is all about. Peter says in in and Second um, uh, Peter that it's not the washing of the flesh, or excuse me, First Peter three. It's not the washing of the flesh, but it, this pictured something that that spiritually we are washed, we are cleansed positionally in Christ. And so when a person is immersed in the water, this is identification with Christ in His death. The picture of the water is a picture of being washed. Water always relates to being cleansed, so it's a picture of being completely cleansed from sin, the application of the cross to the individual person. And then uh, it, the being in the water is a picture of Christ in the grave, so we're identified with Christ in his death burial, and then coming out of the water is a picture of resurrection, resurrected to new life in Christ. And that's what Romans 6 focuses on for the rest of that chapter, chapter 7 and chapter 8, is this new life that we have in Christ, that we have been positionally identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The power of the sin nature is broken. 
So as Paul says in uh, Romans 6.10, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin, that sin no longer has power over us. It doesn't mean that we don't have a sin nature, but that for the first time in history, in this church age, believers are not under the tyranny of the sin nature. And from Adam up until the day of Pentecost, every believer was still a slave to the sin nature. But what Paul is saying in Romans 6 is no, that, that once you're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, that power is broken and you can, under as you're walking by the Spirit, say no to the sin nature. And you can live for God. You can walk in newness of life is the phrase Paul uses in Romans 6. And so all of this is true of every believer that is in Christ. And so because of our new position in Christ. Now, what does that entail? Remember what I've quoted it once already, what uh, Paul said in Ephesians uh, 2, 5, and 6. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he, first thing he did, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we have new life in Christ. Second, he raised us up together. And third, he made us sit together in the heavenly places. That word together, again, emphasizing Jew and Gentile, now united together in this body of Christ. And so all of that is being brought to bear at the beginning of verse 12. And in him, because of our new position in him, that we have been identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, that that baptism by the Spirit places us in Christ, we have, first of all, this word boldness. We have boldness. We have a boldness before God. In our presence to God, in our prayers to God, we have boldness. This is the Greek word parousia, which means boldness. It has the idea of freedom of speech. It has the idea of someone who is very plain speaking and someone who is frank and open and honest and clear about something. Uh, one of the interesting things is that this word is... Uh, is used in John sixteen twenty six to 28, where Jesus tells the disciples, I'm speaking openly with you. I'm not speaking to you uh, in words that are hidden. And he's not speaking in parables. He's not speaking in metaphors. He's speaking just straight out telling them what he has accomplished and what is going to happen. And they said in verse uh, <clears throat> verse 28, they said, you are speaking openly to us, parousia, parousia rather, they're speaking openly. And so this is the idea that we have boldness. We can speak openly, honestly, and clearly to God. Now, I've emphasized this many times when I have taught through some passages in Exodus as well as in Numbers where we see that God says to Moses, or to the elders rather, I don't speak with you in enigmatic words, but with Moses, I speak face to face. He says, I speak to you with it, the elders with enigmatic words, but I speak openly mouth to mouth, face to face with Moses. So that indicates this closeness that Moses had is indicated in passages such as Exodus thirty-two eleven to 13 
and Exodus 33, 12-23, we see how open and honest and frank Moses is with God. But also we see this in the Psalms. We see David just, sometimes he's just mad with God. Why in the world can this happen? How can the, the righteous suffer and the unrighteous prosper? What are you doing, God? And you see a sense at times of frustration and even anger with God, but he's being honest. He's just talking openly and honestly with God. And a lot of Christians are, oh, no, that, that's some kind of uh, disrespect, and, and I, I can't talk to God like that. Well, then you've got a problem with David, don't you? Because David, David wasn't being disrespectful. He's trying to understand what God is doing in his life, and he, he's honest. You don't think God knows how frustrated you are with his plan at times? You think somehow if you haul off and say, God, what in the world are you doing? I'm just so frustrated that God's going to say, well, that's not the right attitude. You can't say that. God knows you better than you know yourself, and he knows how frustrated you are. And sometimes we have to admit and recognize our frustration with what is going on before we can start honestly thinking it through in our own head. And so this is what Paul is talking about here. Because we're in Christ, we have boldness. We can be open and honest with God no matter what the issue is. You, you you can't hide it from God anyway. He knows you through and through. He knows every, every thought. So we have this boldness with God, and the second word is access. Access. We have access to God. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have access to the throne of God. Anytime you want to pray, you can confess sin, and you're in the presence of God. The word here is prosagoge, which has the idea of freedom of entry, freedom to go somewhere, uh, freedom to enter into the throne room of God and to do it with confidence. That's the second word that's there on the screen, pepoithesis, which means confidence. With So it's, t- it's connected to boldness. So we have this because we know who we are in Christ. We know what he has done for us. We know what he's provided for us. We know that we are seated together with him, our high priest at the right hand of the Father. Now, this word, prosagogain, that's used here in uh, 3.12 is used one other time that we've seen earlier in this passage, and that's back in 2.18. I've already quoted from 14 and 15, but in that same paragraph, after talking about the fact that Christ is our peace, and by our he means Jew and Gentile, peace between Jew and Gentile, he's abolished the enmity that was in the law and has brought them together. He says God has created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And then, second, that he may reconcile them both to God. That's in verse 16. That he and he came and Paul writes he preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near for why for verse eighteen for through him through Christ we both Jew and Gentile have access see in the Old Testament only the Jews had access to God through the tabernacle and temple and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. But now any believer, Jew or Gentile, has access 
by one spirit to the Father. So we have to connect what Paul says in verse 18 with what Paul has said in verse 12 of chapter 3, that we have boldness and access through faith in him. So it's through faith in him that we have the boldness and access, and the access is by one spirit to the Father because the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, indwells every single believer. So this is part of our position in Christ from the very beginning. Now, what is the classic biblical illustration of this truth? You all should know this. When Christ was on the cross, as he was suffering and as he had paid the penalty uh, for sins, we read in verse 45 of Matthew uh, Matthew 27, from the sixth hour till the ninth hour, there's darkness over all the land. That is when God the Father poured out the sins of the world upon Christ. And that is between 12 noon and 3 p.m. 12 noon is the sixth hour, 3 p.m. is the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, all this time, Christ has not said a thing. He's been beaten. He's been tortured. He's been flogged. His, his muscles in his back have been, the skin's been ripped open. The muscles are there. Organs could have been visible. He was in absolute total misery like none of us can ever imagine. And now, finally, he screams out. With the pain that comes with the imputation of our sins, he cries out, uh, Eli, Eli, which is Aramaic for my God, my God, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you uh, forsaken me? He is quoting the first lines in Psalm 22.1. He probably quoted the entire psalm. That's how the Jews didn't have chapters and verses. They would refer to a psalm by the first line. And so he is probably quoting the in, in entire thing. And at this point, uh, it, he is has finished paying for the sin. And in the Gospel of John, John wants us to get it very clear what happens. John says, when it was finished, the Greek word is tetelestai, when it was completely over with, when it was finished, Jesus said, tetelestai, it is finished. Before he dies physically, he had completed the payment for sin. So that what happens on the cross is what is significant for the, our forgiveness, for our cleansing of sin, that Christ died and paid for our sin. And when you study through the scriptures, you realize that whenever the New Testament writers are focusing on our new life in Christ, their emphasis is on the resurrection of Christ, that that is uh, talking about our new life in him. And at that time, when Jesus dies physically, Matthew says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks split. Now, this is significant because it is humanly impossible to rip the veil from top to bottom. The veil was a elaborately worn fabric 
that was a, a, a handbreadth in its width, in, in how thick the fabric was. So it's incredibly thick. It was 60 feet long from top to bottom and 30 feet wide. And this rips, an invisible hand of God rips it from top to bottom so that now the access to the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, is open and exposed because with Christ's death on the cross, that access to God has now been opened. And this is what is described in Matthew 27 to 51, and it is referred to in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, that he is our great high priest, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tested as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. We can come with confidence because we have that access to God. We come boldly to the throne of grace that we, we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this is what has been provided for us. We have this access, and we need to take advantage of that access, and we do so through prayer. Now we come to the last verse in this section, which is verse 13 and reads, Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now let's remember what happens in this section. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul started off, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And then what we see after that, if you've got a New King James Bible, is an M-dash. An M-dash is a, is a horizontal line that's a little longer than a hyphen or a dash. And it is setting apart. Some translations may use a parenthesis or something like that, setting it off with commas. But he, is, he stops his train of thought at the end of verse 1, and he goes through a, 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 a secondary thought, which is really the primary thought, from verse 2 down through verse 12. And he's interrupted himself. So he is really saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So between the first part of the sentence and the last part of the sentence, he goes through this, this whole uh, explanation of his ministry. Why? Because he's t- telling these, these Ephesian believers that you shouldn't be discouraged because I'm in jail. You shouldn't be discouraged that for the last five years I have basically been in prison. There were two years that he was arrested in, uh, in Jerusalem. He's two years at Caesarea by the sea under confinement. Then he's on a ship to Rome. We go through the shipwreck. He finally comes to Rome, and he's two years in Rome in house arrest. And people are saying, well, what's going to happen to the gospel? What's happened? Look at this horrible thing that's taken place. How is, look how this is impacting Paul's ministry. But Paul recognizes that this is the sovereign plan of God, 
As uh, Diana Severance mentioned to the ladies yesterday morning, this is the providence of God. This is God's oversight of his plan and purpose, that God is not sitting up there wringing his hands going, oh, my, they've arrested Paul and they put him in jail. What are we going to do? He's not up there now saying, oh, my, there's this COVID pandemic and all my missionaries are shut down and the churches are going to be shut down. What am I going to do? This is God's plan. He's working through these what appear to us to be setbacks to bring about his plan. And while Paul was in uh, prison, house arrest in Rome for those two years, he had opportunities to witness to a number of important people, including those that were in the very household and family of Caesar. If he had not been arrested, he might not have ever had the opportunity. Of course, God could have provided it other ways, but this was the way God did it was by leaving him there just in a, he's not, doesn't have to travel. He is under house arrest and people were coming to him and he is training and teaching so many different people. And as a result of his ministry at Rome, uh, through secondary tertiary efforts, there were probably thousands of Christians that got that that were people who were saved during that time in in Rome, and so he is saying, "This is my mission. This is what I was commissioned to do by the Lord, and He is the one who oversees when and where and how I do it. And therefore, uh, you should not." be sad or sorrowful because your idea of how it should be done isn't working out. God has a plan, and so you don't lose heart, but rejoice in what is going on. I will tell you there are so many missionaries that are not able to get back to where they were on the field. Uh, There are others who have had other logistical problems just getting around, uh, they they have been not been able to leave maybe where they were and get back to the U.S., but God has a plan, and God is working it out. And many times we think something is a real problem and a real roadblock to what God is doing, and yet God is the one who's designed the roadblock because he has a better way to accomplish his goal than, than we do. And so instead of looking at obstacles and difficulties as, oh my, what are we going to do now? We should rejoice because we know God's in control and he's going to bring together his purposes. It's Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And so in this passage, we developed what I call the mystery doctrine rationale for handling uh, suffering. That going back to the beginning of this this um, segue in Paul's uh, explanation in verse two, he says, "If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, if you've heard of the mission and ministry God gave to me for you, don't lose heart at my tribulations." Verse thirteen. And so what we developed from this was about three points, three or four points. First of all, the mystery doctrine describes this new revelation given to Paul and the other apostles regarding the new dispensation of the church age. We are still proclaiming the mystery doctrine of what Christ did on the cross, that now he's created this new man, new body, new household, and new temple. Every time we proclaim the gospel, that's embedded within it. 
Second, in this new dispensation, the church age, God is building this new temple of believers composed of Jew and Gentile equally in this new man, this new body, and also this new household. And then third, this new identity, which involves new blessings. It involves a new joint inheritance, joining together in a new body and new partakers of the promise in Christ. It's so incredible that we should never be discouraged. We should never lose heart. We should never say, oh my, what is God doing? It's all falling apart. God has a plan and purpose. It's his church. Christ said, I will build my church. What did he say to Peter? You feed the sheep. That's the pastor's job. Feed the sheep, and Christ is the one who builds the church. And so our conclusion when we think this through, whenever we see things that discourage us, we should think because of who we are in Christ, because of our assets, because of our privileges, because of our future inheritance and identity, there is no excuse for ever losing heart. I should never get discouraged. I should never think, oh, what am I going to do? Because we have all of this in Christ, and God is going to use every circumstance as an opportunity for us to tell others about Christ, about the gospel, and for the Lord to build his church. And that's the focus of this section. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of all that we have in Christ, that at the instant of our faith in Christ, we became a new creature, and with that we were given incredible spiritual assets, not limited to but including the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, the filling of God the Holy Spirit, and we have been given assets related to our position in him that we are in a new body, we are in a new household, we are called a new man, and we are part of a new temple, the body of Christ that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit as well as each of us individually. So, Father, we pray that we might understand that whenever things look difficult around us, this isn't a hindrance to your plan, but this is a way in which you have worked it out so that your plan will advance. And even though we think it looks like it's three steps forward and two steps back, you are working things so it's always progressing towards your intended conclusion. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening to this message or anyone here today that has never really come to grips with the fact that that they need to uh, trust in Christ as Savior, that we're not saved because of the family we're born in, we're not saved because we go to the right church, we're not saved because we hear the right kind of message, we're saved because we've made a decision in our souls to trust in Christ as Savior, that he is our hope and that he is the only source of our salvation. It is Christ alone. Father, we pray that that it will be clear to them that that is all that they need to do. Just trust in him, believe the scriptures, that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again, that we might have everlasting life. Now, Father, we pray that you would use this teaching to challenge us in the way we think about life, to think about the circumstances around us, that we may keep our focus on Christ, occupied with him and his mission, and not on our circumstances. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.